<laughs> Good morning. I hope you are doing well on this frosty, frosty January morning. I told the Wednesday night uh, prayer gathering, I'm from Florida. I'm not used to this. Okay, so when it gets below like 65, I put on lawn johns. And um, so uh, I hope you're doing well this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 37 this morning. Uh, if not, it'll be on the screen. But as you're turning there, um, we're going to turn our attention to the Lord's Prayer here in just one moment. Um, before we do that, I wanted to just mention really quickly that this morning I want to I want to talk to you out of Genesis chapter 37. Um, and I find myself sometimes um, over over the past four or five times that I've had an opportunity to speak here, I found myself praying and saying, Lord, I feel like this is the word of the Lord for the moment. But then I find myself thinking things like, but they already know this, right? And I was reminded of a friend of mine one time. Um, he's a pastor in another state and somebody asked him, they said, um, what do you do for a living? He said, oh, I just tell people what they already know. I read to them things that they've already read. I help them understand things that they already understand. And uh, today I feel very much like that. I want to talk to you today about some things that I know that you already know, but I feel like the moment is nigh uh, that we be reminded of some things. So um, I'd encourage you to follow along in Genesis 37. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the Lord's Prayer and let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We are going to, to read just here in one moment the entire chapter of Genesis 37, which is a, a good portion, but I'm going to ask you just to kind of, um, you know, follow along with us here. But before we do that, let me kind of set up for you the, the scenario of what's going on. Genesis is um, perhaps one of the most phenomenal books in all of Scripture. It begins with the creation accounts, and uh, you see this uh, not just global unfolding of, you know, the telling of the creation story, but you're really seeing it on a cosmic level. There is, like, universal dynamics that are in play, and for the first, first about 12 chapters of Scripture, what you begin to see is you begin to see this, this rapid advancement of all these different things. You have the creation account, and then you have animals, and then you have people spreading out. And then, you know, we get like six chapters into the Bible, and God's like, I'm done with these people. Let's wipe them all out, you know. And you have the, the global flood event with Noah, and then you have the Tower of Babel. Um, you have this, um, almost this global picture of things that are progressing uh, very, very quickly throughout, throughout the earth. And then all of a sudden, about chapter 12, chapter 13, all of a sudden, uh, this super fast-paced narrative, it really slows down for a moment. And what it does, it goes from this universal, global uh, focus, and it kind of funnels down and it narrows on one particular family. You've known them, you've, you've heard them uh, described as the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as much as, as Genesis contains and is as phenomenal as it is, and like I said, on a, on a universal scale, um, Joseph is perhaps one of the most 
foundational and important characters in, in all of Scripture, definitely in all of Genesis. As a matter of fact, his life makes up about 25% of the 50 chapters in Genesis, okay? The reason that Joseph is, is so important in, in the narrative, it, well, for one, he is a type of Christ. He is a picture in many ways of who Jesus is. But we focus on the life of Joseph because it's through the life of Joseph that the people, the Hebrew people are going to find their way into Egypt. They're going to go into captivity. And then God is going to raise up Moses ultimately to deliver them back to the promised land. And so scripture wanted to trace that narrative. It wanted to trace the story all the way through. And so as we begin today, we're going to look um, a little bit uh, at the life of Jacob, who was Joseph's father, but we're pr uh, predominantly going to focus on Joseph and, and the things that unfolded here in chapter 37. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead uh, and uh, begin here. As we read this narrative, I want you to pay attention. I want you to try to pick up on the emotion, the words that are used that, that describe the emotion that, that happens all throughout this. It'll be very important for what we talk about here in a moment. The Bible says this, now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And Jacob made an ornate robe for Joseph. And when Joseph's brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down. Now, obviously, this did not go over well, right? You're talking about a 17-year-old kid talking to his 11 brothers who were all older than him, some of them in their late 30s, early 40s, and this punk teenage kid is saying, you're going to bow before me one day, right? But indeed, it was a prophetic word. And I'm going to give a shameless plug right here. I think if, if I remember right, pastor is going to speak next Sunday morning on how to appropriately receive a prophetic word, okay? And let me just say this, this is not the way, okay? When, when you receive a word from the Lord, it doesn't mean that you have to share it. That is not what it means. Sometimes it needs to rest in the cooker a little bit. Joseph, in his immaturity, didn't quite understand this. It's proven because not only did he, did he share that one dream, but he doesn't stop there. Scripture continues, and then he said, and I had another dream. And this time, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Joseph's brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And jo Jacob, the father, said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing the fields near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring back word to me. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But when they saw him in the distance, in that beautiful ornate robe, before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. 
Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him. And let's throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Have you ever heard the phrase, love is blind? I got a new one for you. Hatred is blind as well. When, jo- when Reuben, the oldest brother, had heard this, he tried to rescue Joseph from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. In other words, let's just leave him for dead. Let's not kill him ourselves. But Reuben, in his goodness, said this in order to rescue Joseph from them and take his brother back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into a cistern. Now here in a couple chapters, in in like uh, chapter 41 or 42, we read Joseph's account of this, and we understand that Joseph literally in this moment, the scripture says that Joseph begged, he pleaded with his brothers not to do this evil thing, but they did it indeed. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah, one of the brothers, said to the other brothers, what will we gain if we just kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. Then they got Joseph's robe. They slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and they said, we found this. Examine it to see whether this is your son's robe. Jacob recognized it and said, this is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. And then Jacob, the father, tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and mourned for his son for many days. All of his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comfort. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So Joseph's father wept for him. Father, here in, in this moment, uh, we open the scriptures to see what the word of the Lord would say to us today. Surely this uh, passage has been taught so many times and in so many different ways. But I pray today, Lord, that you will bring about fresh revelation and fresh insights for all of us as individuals. My prayer today, Lord, is that you will help us not only in the days that we live, but in the days that are to come, Lord, for we will need your strength in all of this. So God, will you bless the reading of your word, the preaching of your word. Give us ears to hear what the spirit of the Lord is saying this morning. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. A while back, my, uh, my family and I went through uh, a very difficult situation. Um, it, was, it was a very unique situation, just very troubling. I'm not going to go into the details of what happened um, because it's, it's very personal, it's very private. Nobody, nobody's got physically hurt. Nobody's dying of a disease or anything like that. But it was just a momentary thing that kind of happened to my family um, that, was, that was very difficult for us to go through. And I, I, would, I would say that the word traumatic is probably a little bit too much, but definitely in the moment, it felt like a traumatic situation. And 
I remember in the midst of, of the situation, I remember just feeling like the surging of all types of emotions. Right? I remember uh, feeling very confused sometimes. I remember feeling super frustrated. Uh, I remember feeling fear, like anxiety about everything that was going on. And I remember as, as the hours and the days kind of went on, I remember having this surge of emotion at the very beginning, like the first few hours that this thing had happened. And I remember just having this super surge of all these conflicting emotions and all this just stuff going on in my head. I'm sure you've had a moment like this. And, you know, I remember just thinking, man, I don't even know where I'm at right now. I just feel so lost in, in my thoughts and my emotions. But I remember at a certain point, as, uh, as a little bit of time went on, I remember that, that all of these emotions began to kind of subside. They kind of, you know, you, you just get emotional in a the moment, they begin to kind of die. And I remember they began to kind of subside. But then all of a sudden, I noticed something within myself. And that as all of these emotions began to subside, there was a different new emotion that began to rear its head. And it became like a, a super overwhelming emotion. And I was filled with a rage in my soul that I had never felt before. Now, I'll say this. The, the, if, I, if you understood the situation, you would look at me and say, Corey, that's, that's a righteous anger that you had. And I believe that it was a righteous anger that I had. But it was concerning to me because I felt anger before, right? I've been angry. I've been irritated. I've been all of these things. But there was something about this that I had never felt before. And what was more troubling, it wasn't that I was just experiencing this like fury in my bones in the moment, but that the fury was carrying over from one day to the next, right? Like it was, it was like in my soul. And I remember I, I, I just got to a certain point. I said, I, I need to just kind of talk this out. And so I... Um, I, I came into the office and I, I grabbed the first uh, two guys I could find and it happened to be Pastor Glenn and Pastor Darren and, and stepped into their office and um, just kind of uh, told them about the situation and told them what I was feeling and, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they were super empathetic and they prayed with me and encouraged me and all this kind of stuff. I'm so grateful for the brotherhood uh, and sisterhood among all the pastors. Um, really grateful for that. But as we prayed and afterwards we continued talking, um, Pastor Glenn said something to me. Uh, he said something to me, again, it was something I knew. It's something that I know. But in that moment, it's almost as if I needed somebody outside of me to remind me of that thing so that I could take the appropriate action, if that, if that makes sense. And he looked at me and he said, Corey, he said, I'm going to tell you this. He said, this whole situation reeks of the enemy right? This whole situation just feels demonically inspired. It's just, it's, it's a disgusting thing. He said, but Corey, I need to tell you this. He said, you cannot allow this anger to settle and put roots in your soul. I know that, Pastor Glenn. Thank you. I've given the same counsel a thousand times to a thousand people in a lot of different ways. You can't let that bury in your soul. You can't let it take root. You gotta deal with this. You can't let this mature, right? 
But again, it was almost in the moment, I needed somebody who was objective, somebody that was outside of me, because even though I knew it, I wasn't thinking clearly. I wasn't thinking right. And so by what I believe was, was the providence of God, Pastor Glenn steps in and he says these words. He probably doesn't even remember saying these words, but he says these words, and it was truly a, a turning point for me in this situation, okay? And it's because he understood something that most of us understand, but we just forget sometimes when we're dealing with emotional things. And the truth is this, is that there's a very fine line between when I control my emotion and when my emotion controls me, right? And let me, let me just say that we are living in an era of emotion that is off the rails. We are, we are living in an era where emotions are unhinged, they are unfettered, they, they go unchecked, we feel certain ways and we think certain things and we don't even process what the, how they may measure against the word of the Lord. There are times where we just do, and, and to make things worse, half of the time my emotion is illogical. It doesn't even make sense in the normal world, but in my world, in that moment, it is the realest thing that I know. And so what I have to do is I have to come to an understanding. I have to come to a place where I begin to experience certain things like this, where I begin to understand that my emotions do not dictate my life. You've heard it said that emotions make wonderful indicators, but terrible dictators, right? So, so I believe in emotion, right? I'm, I'm a pretty emotional guy. I cry a lot, okay? I, I'm emotional in that sense. Uh, I, I believe that we should experience emotion. Even, even emotions like anger, I think, can be righteous emotions. Uh, the Father has, has, not only does He experience emotion, but He has given us emotion. In Genesis, when Scripture says that we are made in the likeness of God, part of that likeness is the emotional aspect of our being. And so I'm not, I'm not against emotions. I'm against blind emotions. I'm against unchecked, unfettered emotions that become dictators in our lives as opposed to bringing them under the submission and the lordship of Christ. I'll tell you, listen to me. You know this around here. We have this, this term that we use with the Christian life family, that we are called to be a people who are counterculture. And you know just as well as I do, in many, not, not just in the world, but, but in the Christian community, many people are not living in a way that's counterculture. Many people emotionally are living as a reflection of the culture. Instead of being a piece of a, a people of stability and sound mind and vision and faith, oftentimes we just become a reflection of the age of rage and we allow our emotion to rule the day. And I just want to remind us, listen to me, you, you, you look all throughout scripture, read church history, read when, when like the truest forms of physical persecution would begin to overwhelm the church. You read about these things and you will understand that the church, by the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the church was able to be the stabilizing voice in that era. 
You don't see people going off the rails. You don't see people losing their cool. You don't, you know, you, you don't see this stuff. As a matter of fact, there was a guy named uh, uh, Pliny the Younger. He was, he was like a type of governor, like in the, in the early church when Christianity had just become a thing. And he had saw all of these um, events unfolding as the Roman Empire would kind of, you know, begin to, to bring the hammer down on the Christian movement, he would notice the uniqueness of Christianity. And so he would go and he would send spies into the Christian camps. He would tell his men, he would say, act like you're a Christian. Go and be around them. Come bring me a report and let's figure out if we can find a reason to arrest them. And these men would come back and they would say plenty. They would say, listen, the, the struggle isn't that they're breaking the law. The reality is they are probably the best citizens we have. Why would we arrest and persecute these people when they are the foundation of our society because of their stability? It's real. You can read about it throughout church history. And all I, I want to say, I know this, I, I am not trying to be harsh. I, I just, I'm, I'm just trying to communicate a very real reality that the church is not called to reflect the emotion of a culture. We are called to be people of faith who trust in the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord and the sovereignty of God and trust that he is going to cause all things to work out in his good plan. And so we need to be a people like that. However, when we allow wrong emotion to go unchecked, as we see in, the, in, in this, this narrative of Joseph, when we allow wrong emotion to go unchecked, oftentimes, more times than not, I would say, it usually leads to sin. It's a slippery slope. In Joseph's life, not just in Joseph's life, but I mean, uh, truly, you can trace this all the way back to Abraham. There seems to be woven throughout their, their family lineage this, um, this lack of emotional control, like, like they feel something and so they immediately act on it without thinking it through or praying it through or considering how it's going to affect other people. And notice, even, even in this narrative, if you go back and read this, it always, in this narrative specifically, when a wrong emotion goes unchecked, it always leads to sin in this particular thing. It always leads to consequences, things that, that we don't want to deal with. And so today what I want to do is I want to talk to you just for a few minutes. Um, I, I want to talk to you about this thing of a slippery slope, which involves a, a slope that leads to sin. Okay, I, I do want to talk about that. But I don't want to talk about like specific sins and, and what we should and should not do regarding specific sins. Okay, um, I think that's important. I think there's a time to talk about those things. But I want to talk more today about the origin of sin, which is usually wrapped up in, in misthinking or wrong emotions that go unchecked and, and these kind of things. If we just deal with sin as far as action goes, it's nothing more than behavior modification, right? So what we have to do is we have to be a people that deal with the root of sin so it's a genuine transformation, and that's, that's what I'm after today. So I don't want you to get confused. I'm going to talk about a lot of different things, and I may specifically talk about a type of sin or different things, but I, need, I, I, I want to be clear. I'm not talking necessarily about specific things. Let the Spirit of the Lord speak to you about specific things. I want to deal with root causes of these specific things. When you look at, when you look at Jacob's life, for example, even before Joseph gets into the picture, 
I want you to consider some things about how one man's emotion led to sin on that slippery slope. For instance, Jacob was incredibly jealous of his brother, a wrong emotion that went unchecked. And so he manipulates, he lies, he deceives his brother Esau out of his birthright. Jacob, furthermore, his, Jacob's mother chose to show favoritism to Jacob, which according to the book of James is a sinful action. She, she preferred him over other people. She showed favoritism, and that led Jacob to not only deceive Esau, his brother, but to deceive his own father. Jacob, furthermore, his selfishness over all of this stuff forces Esau into a position where he feels like he cannot win, and it bears the fruit of hatred in Esau's life. Jacob, as he goes through his life, the lust in his heart the sexual desire in his heart that goes unchecked causes him to have more than one wife. It ends up, Jacob ends up having four wives. Jacob then, even though he is a product and seen the fruit of what favoritism does to a family, Jacob shows favoritism to one of those wives. Her name is Rachel. Rachel then shows favoritism to their youngest son named Joseph. The Bible clearly says Joseph loved Joseph, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Listen to me. I am, I am one of two children, right? I don't have 11, you know, whatever, dozens of brothers and sisters. Um, but I'll tell you this. I think I'm my mom's favorite, right? As a matter of fact, in her phone, she asked me to like help her set up her phone one day. And, and I took her phone and um, I, under my name, I put uh, my only begotten son um, because she, she loves me. And so now when I call it, it says my only begotten son. I think I'm her favorite. I cannot fathom a moment when my mom would come to me and say, I mean, yeah, I love you. I mean, I like you for sure. But your sister, Danielle, I love her. She is just a cut above. She, you're just different, right? That would destroy the soul of a person, Right? But this wasn't just a thing that, that the brothers kind of picked up on. If you've got more than one sibling, you know that there are times where you wonder, you're like, man, I wonder if dad loves them more, right? You just ponder these kind of things. But no godly father would ever declare it and make a statement that it's true, right? And so in this moment, it's not just that the, the siblings are picking up on it. Jacob is literally saying it to his children, that he loves one of them more than the other. And this favoritism causes Joseph's brothers to hate him. You understand where I'm tracking? These emotions, these feelings that, that go unchecked, they lead somewhere if we don't deal with them the appropriate way. This, this filters all the way down to Joseph's life. You look at Joseph. Joseph, he was a young kid, and I get it. And his immaturity probably won the day. But as he is sharing his dreams, there seems to be a level of arrogance about Joseph, which causes his brothers to hate him even more than they did before. The brothers' hatred, the feeling, the emotion of hatred causes them to want to kill Joseph. They literally want to murder their brother. Judah, one of the brothers, he has greed in his heart, the emotion of greed. He wants more. And he tries to step up on the stage and be the noble brother. And he says, listen, who are you savages that you want to shed the life of your brother? You should be ashamed of yourself. Let's just sell him instead. 
That way we'll get a piece of the pie. And so his greed leads them to basically a form of human trafficking. They sold their brother into slavery. And the brother's hatred, their, their, their sheer hatred that gave birth to sin causes their father, their mother, their sisters, their servants to live the rest of their life in pain. And so what I want to say today is I just want to help us to be reminded that sin doesn't begin with an evil action. It always begins as an emotion. It never, no one ever wakes up and they're like, ugh, I think I'm going to kill somebody today. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. That, I, mean, maybe I mean, maybe somebody with a, a very serious disorder, but, but I'm saying the average person doesn't wake up and do that, especially if they're a Christian right? It always begins with a thought. No woman just wakes up and decides she wants to commit adultery on her husband. No, it's things that have been seeded and watered and, and given room to grow and given room to mature because they haven't been checked emotionally. And so it's a reminder for us that, that our emotions lead to a slippery slope if we, don't, if we don't take care of them at that point. The brother of Jesus, James, he wrote this. He said, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And listen to this. These desires give birth to sinful actions, right? So it's, it's fascinating to me when, when you read Paul's writings all throughout the, the New Testament scriptures, there will be times when Paul will just go on this rampage and he will start talking about sin and he'll start edifying the people and he'll say, listen, you used to live like this, but that is not you anymore. Stay away from this type of activity. That is not who we are. We are to be identified like this and, and all these things. And he'll start going down and he'll start talking about action-oriented sins, right? He'll start saying things about, you know, sexual immorality or sensuality. He'll talk about things like not being drunk and not slandering. He'll do do these things, and these are the things that most Christians, as we read through, we kind of pick up on those things, but we neglect the other things that are surrounding those words. And the reality is this, when you start reading the things that surround those action-oriented sins that Paul is talking about, it ends up being emotionally-oriented sins that Paul is talking about. He starts talking about things like fits of rage fits of, of anger. He starts talking about things like strife and envy and greed, these emotions that begin in the heart. The reason that Paul is dealing not only with the action of sin, but he's dealing with the emotion of the sin is because Paul understands that these wrong emotions can be a slippery slope. And if we give them way, they can give birth to sin, right? But oftentimes, we, I know for me, I don't know that I fully believe that all the time. I often feel like when I, when I experience certain things, I often feel like I can control this. Like this isn't anything I, I really need to do, but I, I can control this. Have you ever, I, I love our house. We have like 84 children at my place, so we're always like playing games and stuff like that. And my girls, uh, over the past couple of years, they love this game. We call it the hand grab game. I, I, I mean, you probably know exactly what I'm talking about when I describe this. And I'll be laying on the couch or something like that, and my hand will be open, and my girls will come 
and they'll just kind of like smack my hand, right? They're like, get it, daddy. And they'll kind of smack my hand. And one time I may try to grab it and they'll, they'll get away. And, oh, you know, they got away, you know, and all this stuff. And they'll go and I'll act like I grab and won't grab it. And, and then they'll, they'll go. And, and over a series of time, if the more times that they have success, listen to this, the longer they're willing to let their hand stay in the trap. You know this, right? You play this game with your kids, right? I'm not like, okay. And, 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 and without fail at a certain point, they will leave it there long enough and bam, I'll get it, right? And then I'll tickle them real good, okay? But oftentimes my point is simply this. Sometimes we feel like I can handle this. Not a big deal. Do I really need to repent over this? Do I really need to talk to somebody about this? The emotion feels right. My emotion is justified. That's, that's the tricky one, when your emotion is truly justified, but then it crosses a barrier that you can't control. And then all of a sudden, when we're not aware, it grabs us. Right? This is why the writer of Genesis, he would say, listen, sin is crouching at the door. It's crouching. It's just waiting for you to slip. Right? And listen to me, I'm not trying to instill fear into the hearts of people like, oh my Jesus, I don't know what to think anymore. You know, that is not what I'm trying to do. But I am trying to remind us that in the era that we live, when emotion wins the day, that we are primarily not called to be a people of emotion. Okay? We are called to be a people of faith rooted in Scripture. That's why the writer of, Hebrew, or of uh, Proverbs, that's what he says. He says, listen, above all else, guard your heart. He doesn't say, hey, listen, above, all, above everything else you do, guard your body because you don't want to fall into sexual sin. That's not what he says. He doesn't say, hey, listen, above all else, guard your mouth because if not, you'll start to gossip. You'll start a cussing again. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, above all else, guard your heart. Because what I allow into my heart, the thoughts that I dwell on, the emotions that go unchecked, these things, listen to what he says. He says, for it determines the course of your life. Jesus would go as far, he would say, listen, whatever you let in is going to come out. He said, listen to me, we are walking trees. Understand that we are trees just walking around. And we are bearing the fruit of the things that we have allowed to water our soil. We're, we're bearing the fruit and we're dropping this fruit wherever we go. And so we, we have to understand the power of emotion because they can lead us to a place of righteousness or they can lead us to a place of sinfulness. And listen to me say this. We are living in a peculiar day. And sometimes it can feel scary and sometimes it can be unnerving. But I'm telling you this, sometimes it can be incredibly exciting. Because when I look at the days as described in Scripture, it reminds me that Jesus did not leave me as an orphan. That he's coming back for me. But a reminder for us all is that Jesus said, I'm coming back for a spotless bride. Not coming back for a bride that is a reflection of the culture. Come back for a bride that's, that's, that portrays, that, that does the same equal opposite evil as the culture. 
coming back for a spotless bride who will honor the name of Christ in all that we do. So if we allow wrong emotions to rule the day, sin will have its effect. And let me just talk to you just for a couple minutes about, about how that effect unplays in the life of a person. I'll just say this, not just in the life of a person, but as we're seeing in the life of an empire, okay? Sin begins as a seed of wrong emotion or doubt or desire or whatever, according to James, right? It, it begins as, as something that goes unchecked. And when given room, it gives birth to sin. And here's the scary part. Not only does it give birth to sin, but it gives birth to more sin. And not only more sin, but ultimately worse sin, right? So it's not just this thing that I do and it's over. It's this thing that until repentance truly takes root, it becomes this thing. Uh, Paul describes it. Paul sees this unfolding in, in the Roman era, right? In, in First Romans, this is what he says. He's talking about all the things. They loved pleasure more than God and they were, you know, this and that. They did all these things. But listen to what he says. He says, and they invent ways to do evil, it wasn't just that they had wrong emotion and they sinned and that it was more sin, but they got to a place where there was just something in them. The beast was alive and they were inventing ways to sin because sin was dominating that moment. We've seen this. You've seen this in the lives of other people. We have seen these types of things unfold in our very nation. There is a weakening of the conscience that happens when sin goes unrepented of. Back in the 70s, 60s, I wasn't alive, but this is what I've read in the history books. <laughs> the loudest voices in our nation, and we, we have got our issues in the past, but listen to me say this. The loudest voices in our nation in the 60s and 70s were doing everything they could to suppress perversion. The, the, there was a moral fiber in our nation that existed then, and bad things still happen, but it existed then that does not exist today. And, and listen to me say this, there was a weakening of the conscience. In the 70s and the 60s, the, the moral conscience of this nation was doing everything it could to suppress the sexual revolution. We were doing everything that we could to suppress the teachings of evolution. We were doing things to suppress these types of perversions that were trying to gain traction in our nation. But 50, 60 years later, the loudest voices in our nation are no longer trying to suppress perversion. They're trying to suppress purity. You understand? Like There, there are bills in the, in the making like, like here locally. That are, that are attempting to silence voices that speak for the unborn, that, that speak about the, the truest traditional form of biblical marriage and what a family should look like. There are things that are trying to suppress the purity that have never done it before. Why? Because there's a weakening of the nation. Not just a few people, not just bad people. Listen to me. I'm talking about in Christian circles. There is a problem when, when the Christian movements are attempting su to suppress the purity, but we're seeing it. And when you look at Joseph's brother's lives, this is what you see. You see two different things happening. Not only do you see the, the sin that affects, it weakens their conscience, but as it, and listen, it does weaken their conscience. 
right? Their hatred grows to the point where they're willing to plot the murder of their brother. But it doesn't just go from plotting the murder of their brother. Listen to the hardness of heart, the, the searing of the conscience. They throw this boy into a cistern, and minutes later, they go and eat lunch together. Do you understand that? Like, I know it, I know it feels in narrative form, but these are actual events that happen. And I want you to consider somebody taking one of your siblings and throwing them into a pit and left for dead and then turning around and going to Chick-fil-A for lunch. It is a callousness that we see unfold in the life of Joseph's brother. So as their, as their conscience is being weakened, their carnality is being strengthened. So it begins with the emotions of jealousy and hatred, but then it evolves into lies, and then it evolves into murder, and then ultimately it gets to a place where they're willing to sell their brother for goods. So, so there is this twofold thing that as, as we as individuals, as we as a nation, if, if we allow sin to have its full effect, what begins to happen is there is a weakening of the conscience, there's a strengthening of the carnality in a person. The strengthening of the carnality is this idea it's, it's the same idea that says, the more I eat, the more I want to eat, right? This, there's, a, there's a scientific term for this we call the, uh, the uh, Diderot effect. And this is what, what it, it's basically this. When I go to AT&T and I buy a $1,200 phone, um, before I leave the store, there's something in my mind that says the phone's not enough. I got to get a case. Before I leave that, the case isn't enough. I got to get a screen protector, right? Not just a screen protector, but I got to get a car charger because the home charger is just not going to be enough. What if I, what if I, I got to get a car charger? I don't just got to get a case. I got to get a pop socket. I, I don't just got to do that. I got to get, uh, after this, I don't just got to do that. I've got to get AirPods. I don't just got to have AirPods. I got to have AirPod Pros, right? And we're all guilty of that. We are, I am so guilty of that. I love stuff, right? But, but that's beyond the point. The point of what I'm trying to say is like there is an insatiable appetite that sin possesses over a person when, when it goes unrepented of and, and unchecked, right? This is why, this is as, as sin evolves and it becomes more and more insatiable, this is why people who, who struggle in the realm of, of pornography, this is why you will almost, it has almost never happened that a person goes from never viewing pornography to the most violent forms of pornography. It almost never happens. What does happen is this. It begins with the lowest form of pornography. And when that no longer meets the appetite, it grows to a harsher form of pornography. And when that doesn't meet it, it goes on and on and on. And this is what James was saying. He was saying, listen, when sin is given room to grow, not only, not only does the desire un, unchecked produce sin, but when the sin is left unto itself, it produces death. And the person, and the individual, the corporation, the empire, what, whatever you want to call it. And so we've, we've got to understand that, that, that our emotions unchecked can lead to very, very dark places. And it's not just dark places for us as individuals, but we've got to be reminded that when I go down this slippery slope, that it never ends by just affecting me. My sin, my issues never only affect me. They always affect other people. They do affect me, but it never stops there. When you look at Joseph's life 
and the brothers and all this kind of stuff, not only did they, did they you know, put Joseph in like false imprisonment and, and basically made him a slave for most of his life, but think about the father and think about the family, think about the sisters and the mother that, that for the rest of their days had to grieve the loss of their son because of one thing, emotion that went unchecked. It was given room to grow, and indeed it grew. And it grew to a point of no return. And so we've got to understand this. So I think you understand. Like I said, I, I know that you know this. Just throwing a little reminder out there, you know. And so the question is, what do we do with it? Right? So, so what do we do now? Let me, let me cover with you really briefly, maybe, uh, five Christian life lessons real quickly. Number one is simply this, what I've been saying the whole, the whole time. We must recognize that sin often begins in unchecked emotions. Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he admonished them. He said, take every thought captive to obey Christ. I have used this scripture in sermons. I, I've heard people that, and we have used this to be more of a, um, you know, don't feel bad about yourself. Take, take that thought and throw it away. And I believe in all that, you know, I think we need to, to believe what God says about us. But can I tell you, it's so much more than that. It is so much more than that. It doesn't say take every thought captive to feel better about myself. It says take every thought captive to obey Christ because that is the ultimate goal. Now, here is a little life hack for you, okay, and for me as well. If we can learn to kill the wrong emotion, the wrong desire, the wrong temptation, the wrong thought process, if we can learn to kill it in its infancy, we will never have to deal with the sin and try to kill it at that point, right? Typically, what, what I, would, I would think, I know I've done it in my life. Typically, I'm like, when the sin has manifest, I'm like, I got to kill the sin. I'm saying, man, that's a, that's a mountain you got to climb. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of layers to chip that thing down. What I'm saying is this. If we kill it in the most, uh, in the most minute stage, we can avoid all this collateral damage. But here's the thing. You got to kill it quick. I have had a resurrection of a passion uh, in my life over the, over the past couple of years. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up hunting my, my whole life. My dad is an avid gamesman. And uh, I grew up hunting. Here in the past year or so, I've really, um, there's been like this new desire uh, for hunting. And I love specifically dove hunting, like any kind of bird hunting, but I love dove hunting. It is just so much fun. Uh, I got some, some buddies that love dove hunting. I went dove hunting yesterday, as a matter of fact. And uh, I just love it. And um, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, me and a friend had, had gone on this dove hunt. And it was a barn burner. I mean, there were, it was like the most ideal situation ever. We were killing birds left and right. We couldn't, I mean, our barrels were like melting. It was amazing. It was so much fun. Um, please don't call PETA, okay? <laughs> After this story, please do not call PETA. Um, so birds are dropping left and right, and it is so much fun. And, and my friend is like, he's probably 75 yards on the other side of the field, but we can see each other. There's clear. I don't have to go through woods or anything. It's a field. And I can just walk through. And uh, he texts me, and he says this. He says, one of the birds I shot is still alive. And I had grown up hunting dove and different things like that. 
And so I texted him back and I said, oh, well, just wring its neck, right? Now, to me, I was like, that's a very logical thing because as a child, I was taught that was appropriate. Have you ever seen something get its neck wrung? That's super disturbing, right? Super disturbing. And so my friend said, what do you mean? And I, and I explained what wringing the neck was, you know, like you do a chicken or something like that. And I explained it and he texted me back and said, yeah, uh, I'm not going to do that. And uh, <laughs> I thought, and then I gave it a moment and I thought, yeah, that, that, that sounds like barbaric, you know? And so, so I said, okay, I'm coming over to you. And so I went over there and he didn't want to like, you know, reshoot the bird right there at close range and all this. And, um, you know, I was taught, you know, there, there is an ethic to hunting. You know, it's not just you go out and just murder things for the sake of, there, there are a couple, of, I was always taught that you need to, if you kill something, you need to eat it and that um, you should never let an animal suffer. Okay, there, there are very few things more difficult to watch than an animal suffer, a helpless animal. And so uh, I thought I need to get over there and we need to finish off this, this animal because it's a terminal situation anyway. We just need to go ahead and finish it off. So we go over there and by the time I get there, my friend says, ah, I forgot, I got a knife, I'll just go. And I said, okay, let's go ahead and finish this bird off. And so um, uh, he goes to get the knife and, and I go over to the bird that's just, it's alive, but you know, it's, it's gonna die, but I just don't want it to suffer. And I'm like, we need to do this quick, you know, kind of thing. So he goes and gets the knife and, he goes to, to kill the bird, and just before he does, I just ever so gently put my boot just to hold it in place so it wouldn't, you know, whatever. And anyway, um, so as soon as I applied a little bit of pressure to the bird, it took off. It started flying. And I, I mean, it didn't like start flying and it went off into oblivion. I'm saying it like hopped like five feet and I was like, I was like, what just happened? And then I was like, that was super bizarre. And then we go to walk over to the bird and it starts flying, like, like trying to fly. It's like sideways because one of its wings are, you know, and it starts trying to fly. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, as we're walking over, I hear kapow. And my friend was like, I need, he shot the bird in midair as it was trying to fly. And I was like, because in his mind, he's thinking, look, if this bird gets into the woods, some fox is going to eat this thing while it's still alive. And we don't want that. We want to go ahead and finish it and, and just take care of it. So he shoots the bird in midair. It startled me. And I was like, okay, okay, so uh, we're fine. So we go over to the bird and we reach down to finish off the bird. And the bird flies off. <laughs> Same thing. And I'm like, at this point, I'm like, I'm going to go and like jump on it and like put it in a headlock, you know, and finish it off, you know, kind of thing. Just, man, what is going on? So finally we get over there and, Bert, I mean, I'm not exaggerating. Uh, that was a little bit exaggerated, but I'm saying I got on top of the thing. I was like, this thing, you know, we're going to end this. Friend gets it, ends the bird, everything like that. We stand up, we're like, man, I cannot believe what just happened. We go to pick the bird up and it's clearly dead and the bird starts moving again. And I thought one of three things. I thought, we are just really, really bad hunters, okay? <laughs> it's probably the most applicable. Number two, this bird is demon-possessed. It has legion living inside of it. Um, or three, it was just, you know, the nerve endings and all that. Ultimately, that's what it ended up to be. The bird was finally out of its misery. Now, my point to that utterly ridiculous story is simply this. that as we were trying to do the right thing and put this bird out of its misery, we were trying to delicately put it out of its misery. 
Understand what I'm saying? We're like, we can handle this. Like, we, come on, let's, let's just be gentle and all this kind of stuff. The reality is the bird would have suffered a lot less if we would have aggressively went after it, right? And I think often when we're dealing with these things that are, they're, they're inside of us, they're not sin, they're just, we know that they're wrong, we know we shouldn't think or, or feel or, or be tempted by all these things. We're, we're feeling these things on the inside. Instead of aggressively going after it, we try to domesticate it. We try to go after and we, we try to say, well, I'll, I'll deal with this, but, but this is the way I'm going to deal with it. Instead of going after it and just killing the thing where it stands and what ultimately ends up happening is not only do we suffer more in the process, but we give it room to grow. And so we have got to learn that sin often begins as emotion it cannot be tamed. It must be killed. It must be dealt with because here's the thing. Although wrong emotion, all these things, it is not sin yet, but it is a seed of sin. And a seed of sin often acts like the manifestation of a sin, right? So sin is hard to kill. The seed of a sin is also hard to kill. So it would behoove us to cut it off where it stands, if that makes sense. So we've got to learn that, that sin often begins in our emotions. We've got to deal with it quickly. The second thing we've got to remember, and I'm, I'm wrapping this up. Number two, we must put a plan in place to resist the temptation. James 4 says, submit yourselves unto God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen, you realize that sometimes resistance looks like a fight. Right? Like as I'm, as I'm having these raw emotions and different things like that, sometimes it's time to make spiritual warfare. Sometimes it's time to declare scripture. When I'm having emotions toward another person, sometimes it's time for me to sit down and have a conversation with that person. Right? There, there are times where resistance of, of the things that are inside of us, resistance looks like putting up a fight and doing something. Right? But can I tell you, we've been duped into understanding, we've been duped into believing in our culture that we have got to show up to every single fight that there is. Can I remind us all that sometimes resistance looks like a fight, but sometimes resistance looks like just walking away. Sometimes resistance looks like not replying on Facebook. That's what, listen to me, and I'll, I'll further say this, there's some righteous to dealing with things that need to be dealt with. I am all about that. But I'm going to tell you this. There has never been a moment where I openly in front of people physically or behind a screen online where I tried to build a case or to make an argument with people that contended or saw it differently. I have never one time changed their mind. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe. Or maybe it's in such a venue that people don't want to be humiliated, so they will resist a conversation. But can I tell you this? There have been a thousand times where I've taken an argument offline, where it's just me and another person. I've made massive headway in those conversations. Sometimes it looks like just walking away. You remember David? When he sees Bathsheba bathing naked, he sees this, you realize that was not the time to fight. 
right? That wasn't the time to be like, sound the worship team. (laughs) Declare the scriptures. This woman's naked and doing what women do, bathe. No. This was a moment where the best thing David could have done just walked away. It would have been the greatest form of resistance that the man had done in his entire life was just simply to walk away. Walking away is not weak. On the contrary, oftentimes walking away requires the greater level of strength. Listen to me, and I'm not, I hope, I'm not, I don't know how to say this without sounding like an idiot. I'm not a weak person. I don't, I don't give in to, you know, people who are dumb and different things and slander and all that kind of, I don't, I don't give in to stuff like that. The, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man who ever lived, said there is a time to speak up. And I believe that. There is a time to speak up. A moment later, he said, there's also the time to shut up. And the mature Christian walks in a way where we understand what time it is. Sometimes we got to say something. Not always. And we've got to grow to a place, especially, especially when we live in an age where everybody is a news media outlet. Every person has their version. Every person has reasons. Every person can valid, you know, bring validity to what they believe, all this kind of stuff. Listen to me. For your own personal sanity in the days ahead. So, and listen to me. I'm not a person. I don't think that we should bury our head in the sand. On the contrary. I think we should be very intellectual about our faith and what we believe. And I think we should stand strong in those things. But I'm telling you this. To walk away for a couple of weeks is not weak. That's right. It could be a source of your salvation and your strength. And so whatever these things are that, that are that are twirling inside of me and in you, we've got to take appropriate measures to make sure that we don't give these things room to grow. We've got to, we've got to starve the emotion. We've got to starve uh, the visceral, you know, dedication to, to do this or to do that. Sometimes, and let me just say this, I am not saying this uh, to speak down or anything like that. I, I think you know my heart. But I'm telling you this, and I'm not saying it to be super spiritual. I am saying that as the people of God, we need to individually invest more time in the Word of God. Amen. And just as Pastor said earlier, in the prayer closet. Not praying about the people that are so infuriating us. Not praying about the other side of the political arena that's wrong. Not praying about any of these things but sitting in a moment and soaking in the presence of the Lord and saying, Father, listen to me, there's nothing wrong with saying, Father, I am so messed up emotionally right now. I need you to come in and to soothe my soul. I need you to come in and redirect the things inside of me that are off and not honoring to you. I need you to do this. And listen to me, God is a father. Not one of my children have ever or will never ask me, Daddy, would you just sit with me for a little bit? And not one time will I ever say, I can't, I'm too busy. Not one time, because I'm a father. The God of all creation is the epitome of what a father is. He's not going to turn us away. And he's not going to berate us for feeling the things that we feel when he has given us the very emotions that we're going through. All I'm saying today 
is that it can't go unharnessed. We live in a broken world. We're saved by an incredible Savior. We're going to heaven regardless of what we feel, okay? Uh, understand that that has nothing to do with our salvation. But I'm telling you, to be effective in this world in the days to come, we've got to get a grip. We've got to get a grip on our emotions. We've got to get a grip on how we are uh, engaged in the world. And we need to do so in a way that will honor the Lord. Number three, when we, when we fail, I'm going to let you read the rest of this on your own. You may be so angry with me, you want to tear it up. Check your emotion. Okay. <laughs> let me just finally say this. This is number five in your, in your outline. We've also got to remind ourselves that even when we sin, we're still children of the Most High God. So the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, he wrote that the Father has loved us so much that we are called the children of God. And this is what he says. He tacks this little, this little caveat on the end. He says, and we really are his children. He says, we really are his children. And we've got to remind ourselves, listen to me, this is a tactic of the enemy. You allow your emotions to get out of control. You do something that you know you shouldn't do. This is a tactic of the enemy to say that there is no coming back from it. And I would say quite the contrary. There's nothing but coming back for it for the child of God. Because we, we are reminded that all of this is done not of our own doing, but it is a gift of God. Not as the result of works, lest any person should boast. We are saved by grace, and it's not just a saving grace, it's a keeping grace. And listen to me, I just, I just want to say this. In the days that are, that are coming, and I, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm telling you, it's bad right now. It's bad. In this nation, it's bad. I don't think it holds a candle to what's to come. And the people of God have got to be ready. We can't play catch up when it hits the fan. We've got to be ready now. And so I just want to remind us, I feel like I have just so frustrated and confused so many. But in the heart of everything I'm, I'm trying to communicate today, I want you to understand that we've got to be ready. And by the grace of God, not only the saving grace of God, but the keeping grace of God, he will help us. And listen to me, and I know you know this. Again, I know you know this. I'm just telling you things you already know. I'm telling you, how we prepare will make all the difference in the world as to whether it is the church's finest hour or whether it's the church's most embarrassing hour. I want to be a person who's on the side of history that sees the church. If the Lord tarries for a thousand years, I want to be on the side of history where 500 years from now, people say, I wish I would have been a part of that church because they were vibrant. They were stable. They were in control. They knew where they were going. They didn't get deterred. They followed the vision of God to the ends of the earth. And I wish so bad I would have been a part of that. And I think we can. Amen. Will you stand with me real quick? I'm going to tell you, listen, if you've never, if you're here today you, and you're a guest, you're probably like, who is this guy? <laughs> I'm so sorry. Our pastor will be back next week. He'll correct everything that I said wrong. Um, 
But I still want you to know this, that if you've never trusted Christ to forgive you of your sins and to restore that relationship between you and the creator God, uh, you can do that today. We are sinners, but God sent us a solution in his son, Jesus. And today we're going to have our prayer ministry team. They're going to go out this door here in just one moment. If you have never accepted the forgiveness of God, you can talk to them. You can come talk to me or Pastor Justin. We'll be up here. Um, We would love to pray with you. If you're at home listening today, um, there is a number on your screen that you can call the church office. Somebody will pray with you regardless of what you need prayer for. We want to open that up. And we just want to remind you that the Lord, although it seems very, very trying in this moment, that the Lord promises. He calls himself Emmanuel, which means God with us. Father, thank you for that truth today. Thank you for the word of the Lord. My prayer, Lord, is that you will take every word that's spoken and that the spirit of the Lord will cause it to resonate in the way that you want it to resonate in hearts. And I pray today, Lord, that we will see the fruit of your word in our lives as a church family. And Father, we will be a part of that glorious bride that is spotless in all her ways. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you today. You're welcome to stay in worship or come for prayer. We love you so much. We will see you on Wednesday or next Sunday.